Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Well, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. I haven't had a chance to meet you. My name is Ian, one of the pastors here. It's my honor and privilege to open up God's Word, and it is truly good to see you. I know our band is dressed for like a funeral this morning, <laughs> but I'm, I'm happy you're here, so thanks for coming. Um, as Chelsea said, the kiddos, there are clipboards in the back. Um, I'll try not to drone on too long. Um, if you need to draw me or something, it's just the bald guy, right? When Rob preaches, we get the nice beard. Um, just make sure you capture my five head. It'll be good. Uh, this morning, we're uh, going to keep working through our series here uh, on the parables of the kingdom, and we're going to be looking at the third straight week of a parable about a seed of some kind. Right? So if you've been with us, we've looked at the parable of the sower, then last week we looked at the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and this time around, Jesus seems to have hit on a theme he wants to keep hitting on, and so we're going to talk about a mustard seed today. And as we think about what's led up to this point, let me just quickly recap the last two weeks. Right? So the parable of the sower is the first parable that Jesus tells, and he basically is answering the question, how do you get into this kingdom? How do you get into this kingdom? What does it look like to enter into it? And the answer we saw there was it involves rightly hearing Jesus, rightly hearing Jesus. Do we have ears to hear? Do we have eyes to see? Do we have hearts that can understand? That was the parable of the sower. And then last week, we looked at the wheat and the weeds and talked about expectations in the life of this kingdom of heaven. And we saw that we should expect adversity. That the wheat and the we is God's people and those who follow the enemy, good and evil, are going to grow up together until the day of harvest, until the end. And so if we can put ourselves in the place of the disciples for a moment, they might be feeling something like this by the end of those two parables. Well, Jesus, how exactly is this kingdom going to like, grow? Like If the wheat and the weeds are always going to be there, then what hope is there that we actually can make any sort of difference? How do we know that this kingdom is going to grow in any way, shape, or form? And I think that's precisely what the two parables that we're going to look at today will answer for us and build upon the foundation that we've already looked at. You see, the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven are going to teach us about the unlikely and unstoppable kingdom. And that's what I've entitled our sermon this morning, the unlikely and the unstoppable kingdom. They tell us that this kingdom that has come and will come in the future in its fullness, is slow growing. It takes some time, just like the examples we'll look at today. But as it grows, it has an unstoppable power about it. Sometimes it's hidden from us, but one day it all will be made clear. But that idea of a slow growth often pushes back against the expectations we have for our lives, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest, we are an impatient people. We live in an instantaneous society. We want what we want, and we want it right now, don't we? But we see that that's just not how life works in this kingdom. I mean, take a seed, for example, right? We're going to look at a mustard seed for a while, but uh, if you take a seed, right, and you're to say, all right, I want this seed to grow, 
And to make it grow, you just decide that you're going to throw it as hard as you can at a concrete sidewalk. What's going to happen? Who's going to win that battle every time? The sidewalk, right? If we expect that, bam, I just throw this seed, something's going to happen, the sidewalk's going to win. But you know how a seed defeats a sidewalk? What you do is you get up underneath the sidewalk and you plant the seed down there. And guess what happens? You have to wait. You have to wait. But as that seed, if it has soil to nourish, as it grows and as it comes up, you know what it does to the sidewalk? It'll crack it. It'll grow right through it. You see, there's sort of a hidden power in the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is pointing us to in these parables. There's an incredible potential wrapped up in a seed, just a tiny little seed. But once it begins to grow, once it begins to flourish, once it has what it needs for that to occur, it has an incredible potential that's realized. So today, as we look at these two parables, I think they're fairly straightforward. I think they're somewhat short and simple. They teach us a pretty clear point. So as we work through the main idea of these parables, I also want to kind of zoom out a little bit. Yes, this is what Jesus is saying right here, but how does this fit with the bigger storyline of the scriptures that God has been writing and then the story that he is continuing to write in our lives today? And so we're going to use these as a jumping off point to see what this kingdom is really all about. So here's our main idea this morning. Here's what I think the text is pointing us to. Though it begins in obscurity, God will expand his kingdom far and wide through ordinary, unlikely means. Though it begins in obscurity, God will expand his kingdom far and wide through ordinary, unlikely means. And I want to see this over three points today. I want to talk about the unimpressive beginning of the kingdom and then move to the unstoppable growth of that very same kingdom, and then end by talking about how we live within it. What does that mean for our lives today as we live in this upside-down kingdom of God that has come and will come in its fullness when Jesus returns? That's where we're headed today. Before we jump in, uh, let's pause and let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Pray with me. Lord, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful this morning for an encouraging word. God, we know that there are people who come into this place, God, that we come into this place with all sorts of different things going on in our lives. And so whether it's weariness, whether it's fatigue, whether it's suffering, whether it's just the frustrations of life, or whether things are going well, Lord, may you meet us today in our place of need through your word. Thank you for the good news that though this kingdom begins in obscurity, though it begins so seemingly insignificant, that Lord, one day your glory is going to fill the entirety of of creation. And Lord, as we long for that day, help us to live with wisdom within it. And so give us eyes to see that, ears to hear that, and hearts that are not dull, but hearts that can respond to the good news of the gospel. May you bring that about during our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin by looking at the unimpressive beginning of the kingdom and jump back into the text here. So verse 31 Right on the heels of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, says Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. And then Jesus reminds, it's the smallest of all the seeds. 
Now, technically speaking, there are smaller seeds out there. Okay? If you want to apply modern scientific reasoning to this, sure, you can find a smaller seed. But Jesus' point in the parables is not to tell scientific facts, it's to tell a story that will relate to his audience. And so his audience, the crowd that is gathered, many of them would be farmers. Many of them would be familiar with the idea of planting seed, and a mustard seed was the smallest kind of seed that this community had. So Jesus says, listen, it's like this small mustard seed. He's drawing the crowd in to listen to him. And in fact, this idea of a mustard seed was almost used like proverbially to say it's just something that's really small, something that's really tiny, something that's insignificant to most people. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of a mustard seed sown into a field. Okay, so he moves on from the mustard seed, go down to verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Now, I am not much of a baker besides those little mini Toll House cookies, right? Those are the best cookies out there, okay? Um, besides that, I'm, I'm, I like cooking, much more comfortable in front of a grill. Had to do some research on what's going on here with the baking. So here's what the, the experts say. The experts not being me. Uh, the leaven here is similar to the idea of yeast, okay, though there's some slight differences. The normal method of baking in this time period that would bring about that rising effect in the bread that's so critical to its development is what they would do, they would take this old, already cooked, already risen piece of bread, just a small piece from a batch that maybe was made the other day. And what they would do is they would bring that in, they would mix it in with the new dough, with the flour. And so the woman here in the story, she would mix this small amount of the old with a much greater amount of the new, and then when she would put it in the oven, whatever that looked like back then, it would rise, and you get that beautiful bread smell that we all love, right? It would rise, and then it would be a feast for many to enjoy. And so Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like that old dough that's been mixed in to the making of the bread. Now, these parables, I think, are teaching the same thing. Both the mustard seed and the leaven are Jesus' way of indicating that the kingdom of heaven, at first, is really not all that much to look at. It is seemingly insignificant. It's not really that impressive. I mean, people would not have been thinking, oh man, mustard seed's so impressive. Right? Oh, the leaven, man, that's where the real power is. Or, no, he's just saying, this is what it is. They're even hidden in some ways. I mean, the seed goes into the ground. You don't even get to look at it. The leaven gets mixed in. You don't even know what's the leaven and what's the new. Right? They're both pretty expendable by the world's standards. And what Jesus is drawing our attention to is the smallness of the beginning of the kingdom. Now, remember, we worked through this last week. When Jesus says the kingdom is here, the people had very different expectations for what that looked like. Right? They wanted it to come with great military power and might. They wanted this mighty warrior, military-type king to come in to establish his throne, to overthrow the enemies of God's people in this time period, namely the Romans, and to establish his earthly throne. And so in the face of those expectations, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, they're thinking, yeah, let's go do this. Jesus says, you know what the kingdom of heaven is like? It's like a mustard seed. It's like leaven. I mean, you see how disorienting that would be? They're expecting the mighty conquering king. He's like, yeah, yeah, but the kingdom's more like, you know, this tiny little insignificant mustard seed. 
See, he's trying to reorient their expectations. Elsewhere, Jesus says this even more explicitly. In Luke 17, he says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them this, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus says, This kingdom that I am bringing It's not going to be big and overt and announced from every single billboard. No one says, in fact, most are going to overlook it. Most are not even going to realize that the kingdom is right there in the midst of them. And by the way, the kingdom's in the midst of them because the king has come, because Jesus is there. Now, this didn't fit their expectations of the kingdom. If we're being honest with ourselves, it probably confronts some things in our own heart. I think we can tease this out a little bit. This unimpressive beginning of the kingdom. See, it fits with what we know to be true about the bigger story. It fits what we know to be true about Jesus. It fits what we know to be true about the disciples and God's people. And lastly, it also fits what's true about us as well, if we'll be honest with ourselves. So let's look at each of those. First of all, we see in the king of the kingdom that Jesus was sort of unimpressive in his coming. He certainly didn't fit the mold of a royal king who was coming to build an unstoppable kingdom. At least not in any way we're familiar with a king. See, we picture Jesus culturally, we're at a disadvantage because you likely, when you picture Jesus in your mind, are picturing the very white, very airbrushed, famous depiction of Jesus. You know the one I'm referencing? Wearing the white robe, looking sort of docile off into the distance, right? Sort of looks like a Star Wars figure. You know the picture I'm talking about. That's what comes to mind when we think of Jesus, does it not? The problem is that doesn't exactly fit what the Bible says about Jesus. I mean, consider the prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 there. This is how the prophet talks about this coming Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, later he'll say, as one whom we turn our faces away from, and we esteemed him not. See, just like that mustard seed is not much to look at, Jesus himself, the king of this kingdom, was the same. He came and he was just so ordinary. He was just so ordinary. He was not born in a palace, but in the remote town of Bethlehem later to grow up in Nazareth. And before we think, oh, Nazareth, that sounds cool. When Nathaniel hears that this Messiah figures come from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? It's not exactly a palace, is it? I mean, he grew up a carpenter following his earthly father, Joseph. Then he begins his public ministry, not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, but in like the boonies, like in the outskirts of society, ministering to the poor and to those who are despised. See, this is Jesus. This is the king of this unlikely kingdom. I mean, what kind of king is that? He's not flashy. He's nothing to behold. He just goes about his ordinary business. But there's something extraordinary wrapped up in the ordinary, isn't there? Because we think about the shining, crowning inauguration of this kingdom. And again, we talk about unimpressive beginnings. Where does that happen? Well, Jesus is crowned in glory. We see him for who he is as king while he hangs on a cross. What kind of king is this? You see, this king does not usher in his kingdom through the sword. 
He doesn't usher it in by, um, by trying to overpower the enemies and to establish himself. No, he ushers it in by laying down his own life. But then three days later, showing the most extraordinary thing that's ever happened, he rises from the dead. The tomb is empty, and it changes everything. Now, I just learned this this week as I was doing some research for this. Do you know that there were over 2,000 Jewish people crucified around the time of Jesus? Over 2,000 Jewish people crucified. When they condemn Jesus to death, they're thinking in that mind, well, you know, this is just another of a long list of those who are enemies of the state to be killed by crucifixion. But Jesus shows the world that at the cross, it's not actually defeat, it's victory. And in raising from the grave that he has the ability to conquer death and sin and evil and all that's gone wrong. Listen, this is not the story that we would pick. This is not the Savior that they expected, but it's the very good news we cling to 2,000 years later. You see, that's the king. Unimpressive beginnings. Unlikely means, but yet, he's the king of the kingdom. Now, this extends beyond Jesus. Think now of the disciples. Think about their background, their education. I mean, they are fishermen. They are tax collectors. They are zealots. They're sort of a ragtag group. And I love in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, John and Peter, right, the superstar apostles in our mind, they're standing before the religious elite of the day in the Sanhedrin. They're standing before the high priest and those who are gathered. And as they make their case for Jesus, the high priest and those gathered, they, they say this, they perceived that these were uneducated, common men. That's the disciples, and that might be generous, that they're just common men. I mean, we've said it before, the disciples are not exactly the cream of the crop. Disciples would be trained under rabbis for decades, right? Which means if this is a group of fishermen and tax collectors and zealots, they've already been passed over. They weren't exactly the first round draft picks. But Jesus shows up and he says, this is the group I want. I want the uneducated common men. By the way, in Acts 4, it says that though they perceived they were uneducated and just common men, they knew they had been with Jesus. They knew they had been with Jesus. You see, being with the unlikely king changes us. And we can take that even further. right? This is our story. If you are here and you are in this room and you are a Christian, just like the disciples, you were not drafted onto the team because of something you're bringing to the table. God's not down there built, up in heaven looking down at us building some super team saying, let's just get the most gifted, the most talented, the most powerful people that everyone will see that this is my kingdom. No, no, God purposely works in the opposite of that. You see, God purposely uses what is small and insignificant to the world to make his glory and to make his fame known to all people. If you've been doing community Bible reading with us, we are going through Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 7, the Lord warns Israel. He says, listen, don't get prideful. Don't think I've chosen you because you were this mighty nation who had it all together. He says, on the contrary, you were the fewest. You guys were the smallest. You were the most insignificant, but I have made my covenant with you. And I'm going to make my name and my fame and my glory known. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He says, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, is there boasting in your life? Have we slipped into a faulty mentality that we've brought this about, that I have a lot to contribute. I can see why Jesus would want me on his team. You see, we need to be very careful there. God intentionally chooses the small and the insignificant to make his glory known. The beginning of the kingdom is wholly unimpressive. But Jesus is saying, don't overlook it. Don't overlook it. Don't overlook me. Don't overlook the people that are gathered around me. Don't overlook what's actually happening because let's keep going. Let's keep going. That's the unimpressive beginning, but what's going to happen is an unstoppable growth of the kingdom. Let's revisit the two images. What happens to each of them? We'll go back to the mustard seed. Verse 33, it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it had grown, when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. You see, what begins as a tiny, small, insignificant grain of a seed, something that would be engulfed by the palm of your hand, becomes a tree. It becomes a tree that rises above the other garden plants. It can grow to be 8 to 12 feet tall, enough where the birds come in for home and for shelter. They make a nest there. Something that began so tiny has grown to this great size for all people to see. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is the same way. Go back to the leaven. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now Jesus, as a good storyteller, and as a good preacher, right, maybe is exaggerating the details here a little bit. You know how much three measures of flour is? 50 pounds. Jesus says, look, take the kingdom of heaven is like this tiny little leaven, and then it mixes in with 50 pounds of flour until it was all leavened. I don't know what ancient oven is holding this amount of bread, but here it is, right? The leaven is growing, the bread is rising. This could feed 100 people. It could feed a whole village worth. People could come and eat and be satisfied and have provision. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like the leaven. Although it's small, although it's insignificant, and although it's hidden within the flour, you wouldn't even be able by the end of the mixing of that to tell the new dough apart from the old dough. It has a pervasive, widespread influence into the whole batch of bread. Small and insignificant, but it will have widespread influence. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Unimpressive to begin with. Most will disregard it, but one day, this thing is going to expand. It's going to grow far and wide, and it will go forth into all the world. You see, Jesus is actually hinting at the global nature of his kingdom here. I know I rag on birds because I'm rightly terrified of them. 
Jesus equated them to Satan earlier. In this passage, they're actually positive. So I'm, you know, all life is attention, as I say, right? So the birds, as they come, in the Old Testament, this idea of these birds coming to the tree of Israel is rich with imagery. The birds represent the nations. When Jesus says this small little mustard seed is going to grow into this tree and the birds will come, he's saying, listen, this small unimpressive beginning, this tiny little thing that's happening in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East, right? me as this unimpressive king, these 12 uneducated common men are literally going to be the seed in which the nations are going to come. And of course, we've seen that to be true today. I mean, statistics on the geographic just dispersion of Christianity are incredible. Christianity is without a doubt the most ethnically dispersed major world religion. No single continent or region or culture or ethnicity or people group can claim to be the center of global Christianity. If you look at the data from a few years ago, it shows that something like 26% of Christians around the world live in Europe 37% are in the Americas, not North America, but North, Central, South America. Nearly 25% live in Africa, and 13% are in Asia and the Pacific, which, by the way, that number is exponentially growing over there because of places like China. You know, it's estimated by 2030 that China will have more Christians than the United States. By 2050, China is predicted to be a majority Christian nation. You see, we take a step back and we look at Jesus' words here. He says, this is going to begin like a mustard seed, but guess what? That little seed is now home to the nations. My kingdom will expand globally until we get that vision in Revelation. We're going to read it this week in CBR. Every tribe, every tongue, every language gathered before the throne, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. You see, Jesus here, I think, is trying to warn us against a defeatist mentality. Yes, we know from last week, we need to have a patient realism. Adversity is going to be here. Good and evil will continue until the day he returns. But don't get defeatist about it. Don't become so Debbie Downer, glasses, almost empty type of person. He says, what seems so small and insignificant to the world will actually fulfill all of God's promises. Listen, there'll be moments we're going to look at our own church, our own lives, the church in general, and go, man, what is happening? What's going on here? Is the church just going to lose it? Is this all going to go away? And Jesus says, no, 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 don't be discouraged. Sure, there's going to be uncertainty, there's going to be hard times, but don't get it confused. This kingdom will grow. This kingdom will be unstoppable. It will reach the ends of the earth. And by the way, it might take some time. A tree does not grow overnight. Do you know how long it would take to work in leaven to 50 pounds of flour? That was probably hard work. It took some time, but yet the tree will grow. The bread will rise. This kingdom is unstoppable. And here's the best news you and I can hear this morning. It doesn't even depend on us. It doesn't even depend on us. This growth has, quite frankly, nothing to do with us. We get to participate in it. We are beneficiaries of it, but we are not the ones that bring it about. We are not building the kingdom. We are not building the kingdom. We receive the kingdom, and then we get to tell others about it. God himself is the one who will bring this about. Far too often, 
we can slip into thinking that our own creativity, our own plans, our own strategies, our own entrepreneurial spirits will bring about this explosive growth of the kingdom. But we can deceive ourselves and think that we can make this happen, but Jesus is clear. When he's looking at Peter, who professes, you are Christ, you are the Lord, he says, yes, and I tell you, Peter, that on this rock, on that profession that I am Lord, I will build my church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen, Jesus is building his church. It's not our church. Listen, as one of the pastors of this church, I'll speak on behalf of Pat and Ryan, we love this church, we love to see great things happen. This is not our church. Jesus will build his church. He is overseeing the project. And the way he builds his church is through the gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. It just means good news. The way Jesus builds his kingdom is not by the sword. It's not by coercion. It's not by just taking over areas and saying, hey, we're in town now. Believe it. No, it's by words. You gossip about the gospel and the kingdom grows. It's an unlikely mean. Insignificant for the world. But when this word of the gospel meets the hidden power of the Holy Spirit and creates in lost sinners new life, when spiritually dead people go to spiritually alive, when darkness goes to light, it grows like the mustard seed. It has an effect on the dough like the leaven. I love what Jared Wilson says. He says, if we were designing a movement to take over the world and claim dominion over the universe, you would not come up with Christianity. Amen? We would not come up with this, but yet, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The fact that this little congregation here in Lakeland, Florida, 2,000 years after the events surrounding Jesus exists is evidence of that, isn't it? It is evidence that Jesus will fulfill his promises. What seems insignificant, what seems so small, will eventually spread exponentially. It will grow big and tall and wide. It will spread through the whole earth. So do we trust Jesus? Do we trust him? Do we trust his word? Or are we trying to take on his role? We cannot do it. This is Jesus' church. He will build his kingdom. So let's let him do that. So as we think about trusting, as we think about letting him do that, how in the world do we live that? How do we live within this? How do we exhibit that we understand this kingdom and we're excited about it and it's changing us and we're finding our place within it? Well, we have to talk about what it looks like to live in the upside-down upside life of the kingdom. That's the reputation the early church had, by the way. That's where the name of our church comes from. In Acts 17, they go into Thessalonica, and it says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, proclaiming there's another king, Jesus. Well, how did they do that? How did they, quote-unquote, turn the world upside down, and what does that mean for us? Well, applying the mustard seed, applying the leaven, I think it's going to look unlikely. Here's what I think it looks for us. Three things to consider. Number one, it means embracing obscurity. Embracing obscurity. Now, by obscurity, I don't mean that we hide the gospel. I don't mean that we take the light of the gospel and put a basket over it, like Jesus says elsewhere. 
Right? Jesus is very clear that we're to make the gospel known. Here we talk about declaring and displaying the gospel. Okay, that's not what I'm talking about with obscurity. When I say embracing obscurity, I mean, is that the posture of your own soul? Is that the posture of your soul? See, there's something deep within us that craves glory. We want fame. We want notoriety. We want people to notice us. And deep down, we can convince ourselves that we'll be okay if that happens. We'll be okay if that happens. And we live in a world that values things like platforms, like brands, where you can quote-unquote go viral in a moment, and that can happen to anybody. See, we live in a world that craves big and fast and famous, and if we're not careful, this is spiritually cancerous to us. It is so dangerous, and the effects of this has certainly crept into the church. I mean, have you noticed how we seem to be enamored with celebrities who claim to be Christians nowadays? Have you noticed this at all? Listen, it's great if they are. That means they're a brother and sister in Christ. But sometimes I wonder if we get so caught up in this person so-and-so claiming they're a Christian, or this person tweeted a Bible verse, or man, look at what they're doing, and it adds some level of validity to our faith. And I think when we apply the mustard seed and the leaven, we ought to be very careful there. We almost think, well, if they believe it, this powerful and successful person, well, that makes me feel better about believing it, doesn't it? Maybe it helps us trust the power of the gospel more, which is actually revealing that we don't trust it at all. Listen, Christians in all spheres of cultural life is a good thing, but we need to be very careful who we make the heroes. Are you okay if you live an ordinary Christian life You be faithful by God's grace to what God has given you. You die, your body goes in the ground, and nobody 50 years from now knows about you. Are you okay with that? Because guess what? That's not stopping the kingdom. Rest easy. Like, take a deep breath. Obscurity in our souls is a good thing. There's this beautiful verse in the book of Zechariah. So cross that off your bingo card if you had it for this morning. But Zechariah 4 says this, they come back from exile, and they're back in Jerusalem, and it says, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. You see, it was meant to be a biting challenge that they came back and they viewed this reconstruction, this rebuilding of Israel as just small. We remember what it used to be, God, but now it's just so mundane and boring. And brothers and sisters, the gospel tells us we are not to despise the quote-unquote small things. Instead, it's in the small things that we tap into the very power of the gospel. It's not when we're great. It's not when we're strong. It's not when we have it all figured out. But instead, when we take up the posture of John the Baptist, who says, I must decrease, he must increase. When we resonate with the Apostle Paul who says, I will gladly boast in my weakness, in my smallness, because where I am weak, he is made strong. Have you embraced obscurity in your soul? Have you embraced that posture? There is something to be found there within this kingdom that begins as a mustard seed and as leaven. Secondly, we find beauty in the ordinary. Now, this is one of our core values here at the King's Church, so we couldn't skip over that here. Here's the thing about the mustard seed and the leaven. They were just so ordinary. 
Farming and planting would have been the most stereotypical male task of the day in the first century. Making bread would have been the typical task for a woman in this first century context. Jesus says, listen, you want to know what the kingdom is like? It looks like what you do every day. It looks like planting seed. It looks like baking bread. They're just so ordinary. And I think that Jesus is trying to teach us something in that. You see, there's something in the ordinary. There's something in just the everyday stuff of life that may or may not be exciting to us. It may not be flashy. We might find it boring. But yet it's in the ordinary moments that the extraordinary gospel is contained. There's something for us to learn about the hidden power that's described in these parables in the ordinary moments. It's a woman named Tish Warren who's written an excellent book called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Here's what she says. She says, a sign hangs on the wall in a new monastic Christian community house. And it says this, everyone wants a revolution, no one wants to do the dishes. I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole and beautiful in big ways. But what I'm slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith. The making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small hall, that God's transformation takes root and grows. Maybe you've never viewed doing the dishes as a discipleship issue. But there's something there, isn't it? I think she's on to something. We want the thrill of an edgy faith. right? We want the excitement of all these big things happening. We want to celebrate it. We want all these massive, exciting things for God's kingdom to take place. But it's often in the dailiness, in just the ordinariness of everyday life that sustains us as Christians. Right, otherwise, we get on a roller coaster ride, don't we? Like, man, I remember when God moved in this way, and I'm just waiting for him to do it again. And we're waiting for that next emotional high, that thing to come. And instead, what might it look like to just find beauty in the ordinary? You know what that practically means? It means embracing the ordinary means of grace. It means reading our Bible, opening up a book, and believing it's far more than a book. It means praying. Praying is the seemingly most insignificant thing the world could imagine. You're going to take time to talk to somebody that I don't believe even exists. And we say, yes, we pray. Right? We come to corporate worship. We come and we gather with God's people and we remind ourselves of the gospel. We live life together in community and deep friendships that rise above friendships to actually being brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, while these are quiet, repetitive, small, and ordinary, God uses them to reveal himself and to transform us from one degree of glory to the next. It's a slow growth, but it is an unstoppable one. So are you finding beauty in the ordinary? Lastly, we live with gospel intentionality. Listen, there are moments of revival in the New Testament and in church history. We should pray for them. We should hope that to occur. But the normative way that God has moved throughout history 
is that he changes the world one person at a time. God changes the world one person at a time. So by all means, let's pray for revival. Let's pray for the big things, but we don't do so to the neglect of, by God's grace, just living faithfully in the normal, mundane, everyday moments of our lives. Tim Chester and Steve Timmons say this, the bedrock of gospel ministry is low-key, ordinary, day-to-day work that often goes unseen. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. You know what can be one of the most powerful witnesses to the gospel is how a Christian shows up to work on Monday morning. How we engage in friendships and relationships with our neighbors and with our coworkers. How we live in singleness, if that is our station in life, or what our marriages look like if you are married. How we respond to our kids throwing a temper tantrum in the aisle at Publix can be an incredible witness to the gospel. You see, how we respond to whatever the news of the day is, or maybe how we don't respond, can be a powerful witness to the king and his kingdom. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel gives us a purpose in all of that. The disciples, the apostles, turned the world upside down because they lived as if Jesus were king, not just over the big moments, but over the everyday stuff. What would it look like for you, you, your life, where you're at, if you just applied the gospel to all of it, to every part of it, to recognize that you've been swept up into a kingdom that is bigger than you, that this thing is going to grow and it doesn't even depend on you? What would it look like to embrace the freedom of that and just live as if it were true in everything, especially in the stuff that's boring and mundane? Jesus ends his teaching here. He says that he only spoke in parables, and look at verse 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Well, what's been hidden was Jesus. What's been hidden was Jesus. And he comes on the scene. There was a time where the small, insignificant seed was in the ground, where the leaven was being mixed in, but look where we're at now. Look at the kingdom now. It has grown. It has expanded. We are invited in. Jesus reveals himself through ordinary people, fulfilling ordinary callings, embracing obscurity, finding beauty in the ordinary and simply living as if the gospel were true. So listen, if you're here and you are not a part of that kingdom, you are invited simply to trust the king, to turn to him. And if you're here and you are in that kingdom, we live a life that matches this hidden power that takes deep root in our souls and slowly transforms us. So whatever heart work needs to be done this morning, I pray that you will talk to the king and that you will go about your ordinary lives with extraordinary purpose because of the good news about Jesus. Let's pray.